This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, everybody, to Spark My Muse. And today I'd like to introduce Sophronia Scott. She's the author of the book we'll be in conversation about today, The Seeker and the Monk, Everyday Conversations with Thomas Merton. Sophronia is a novelist, essayist, and the director of the MFA in Creative Writing Program at Alma College in Alma, Michigan, and she lives in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. Thank you so much, Sophronia, for being my guest. I've enjoyed your work. I've enjoyed your walks with Sophronia on YouTube so much, and also the Lent pilgrimage you're doing with Lisa Deem. We have a real kindred spiritual outlook and approach. It's, it's been really comforting to read your book and all its reflections. So thank you so much for creating it and being able to share it today. Thank you for having me, Lisa. I'm, I'm excited to be in conversation with you. Yeah. Now, I mentioned this before, before I started recording, that I've never met anybody named Sophronia, and I was very curious as to how you got this name. I'm named after my father's mother. Oh, wow. Yeah. In, in this country, Sophronia is, um, was a popular name in the South in the turn of hmm. the century. Um, and my father was from Mississippi. Um, but the name is much older than that. I mean, there's, there's a Christian saint named Sophronius, which is the male version of the, the name, uh, dating back to 638 AD. It, it's, a, it's a really old name. And it's Greek, of course. It's Greek. It means of sound mind. And, um, mm. and I think um, the name probably came into this country um, among the Black population during that period of time when uh, slaves were being given classical Greek names. You know, I have an essay collection called Love's Long Line. And if you look, there's an essay called Calling Me By My Name, which talks about all of this stuff, especially that, that PH and the F thing, <laughs> all of these things. So, so yeah, I've completed all of this and written about it. Before we jump into the actual book, we can talk about some of those ways you kind of reach out to your, to your readers and, and people following you in those ways. And some of what's going on with the Lent pilgrimage. I always go first to what is the most authentic. You know, what will feel right for me? I, I, I never do anything just because, oh, you should be doing videos because, you know, everyone likes doing videos. And, oh, you should be on Twitter because everyone loves Twitter. Um, I, I only go to something if it helps me do something that I want to do and if it feels natural. And um, I was... I was at a conference, uh, the, the Hobart Festival of Women Writers, in fact. It's a wonderful uh, event that happens in September in the Catskills. And a couple of years ago, I was there, and it was I was heading to an event one that morning. I was thinking, you know, this is such a wonderful event, and there's all sorts of fun stuff happening here. I should just do a video and tell people what I'm doing. Yeah. And I did that. And and you, I'm, I don't know if you found this, Lisa, but if you get into the habit of doing something regularly, it begins to take on a shape. And, and you realize that there's something that, that you do have to say and connect with. So once I did that video, I sort of challenged myself. I was like, well, what if I made a video every week? And, and what do I, I like to do? Well, you know, usually I'm going to be out in the morning. I should just try to make these, to do the video in the morning while I'm out walking. And uh, 
So it became a thing where sometimes I talk about writing. Sometimes I just talk about what's on my mind. Like, oh, you know, I've been thinking about this this week. That's as simple as it is. And, and I put it on my website. I put it on my YouTube channel and I put it in my social media. And for some reason, people connect to it, right? They, yeah, they yeah. feel like they're walking with me. They're thinking about some of the same things. So it's, it's, it's like a, a living conversation. Hey, thanks. I'm, I'm working on that. I needed to hear that. Um, I actually just recorded my walk this morning um, and just, you know, thinking about how, how we make decisions. So, so it, it feels right. It feels natural. Uh, you asked about the, the Lent series that Lisa Deem and I are doing. Uh, it's called the Pilgrimage of Renewal. So it's a Lenten series, uh, like an online virtual retreat. And we have, we have like 100 people registered for this. And, and we have calls every Wednesday evening. And we're doing this throughout Lent. So the initial you know, spark is Lisa and I connecting because we both have books coming out and thinking about you know, oh, maybe we can do something to promote our books. But then the other thing that's on my mind is hearing expressions of of people feeling disconnected from their spirituality because the pandemic has has sort of worn them down and there's so much loss they felt. And a big loss is not being able to go to church for a lot of people. So, So to me, this idea took on more life because it's not just a let's market a book. It's like, Let's create something that, yes, it connects to Lisa's book on pilgrimage. Lisa's book is uh, 3,000 Miles to Jesus, her book about pilgrimage, my book about seeking and asking the questions that will connect us to God. So let's, let's bring this into a living conversation and at the same time um, have, create this thing that will, that will help people who need to feel reconnected. So, so now it's not a marketing thing and it's not about a book. It's, now it's about community. And that's exciting, right? That's exciting. And that feels yeah. Right. It's the walks that you do feel like you're just walking with a friend and the Lenten pilgrimage just feels like a journey we're doing together. And that uh, isn't salesy. And here we all are together. And there's something very comforting about that when it feels like the distance has grown between us and among us in our different Christian communities, if we haven't been able to to go to our places of worship as we normally have. So I definitely personally appreciate that. And all those things are free. So anybody who's listening to this right now, no matter if it's even a year from now or or a few weeks from now, can access some of these resources. And will that be available from your website or how could people get in touch with some of those things? Uh, they can go to pilgrimageofrenewal.com. Yeah, there's a workbook, there's there's recordings of the the um, weekly meetings and resources. Anything else that I'm forgetting right there? Yeah, no, that's that's it. The workbook, yeah. the meeting recordings and resources. And the resources are things that, that have come up um, because we have a Facebook group and there are people sharing things that have come mm-hmm. up for them. So um, and so you'll see the link to my morning videos there. You'll see a link to articles that, that Lisa has written about pilgrimage. Um, for example, um, a book title came up, uh, Martin Smith's Seasons of the Spirit. It's like, okay, let's put this on the website. Mm. People um, can check out this book that we mentioned in the recording. So, mm. uh, so yeah, so I, I'm just hoping that this will be a, a, a great overall resource right. for spiritual seekers. Well, thank you for doing that because it's not 
like it's easy to whip out. I know these things take a while and they take preparation and dedication and there's no there's no money in it in a sense. There might be some kind of indirect residual something for the books, but it really is a labor of love. So I appreciate that you both would do that. Thank you. We can get into speaking about your book now, but for those who don't know who Merton is, we could give a, a quick overview of him. But it's also important to note that your book in conversation with Merton is not about his books, but his journals. And if you could draw the distinction of what that means, I think that might be helpful as we get started talking about the book. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I've been, I'm steeped in Merton. So my editor is constantly having to remind me that, that most people don't know who Merton is. So we're, we're talking about Thomas Merton, who was a hugely famous monk in the Catholic Church. And he uh, went into the mo a monastery in uh, Kentucky, the Abbey of Gethsemane, when he was a very young man. He was in his 20s. And he was encouraged to write his, his autobiography, which is kind of odd when you think about it because he was still so young, but it's really the story of his spiritual journey. And that book became Seven Story Mountain. And mm -hmm. that book, you know, made him famous. And he began to write tons of things about spirituality and eventually about social issues, about peace and civil rights. And, mm -hmm. uh, and he studied um, Buddhism and he was just a fascinating person. And he wrote a ton of stuff. Like if you look up his bibliography, it's huge. And, mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, um, he died in 1968 um, and, and very young. He was only 53 when he died. Mm -hmm. And but most people know all of these books. Right. And they know Seven Story mm -hmm. Mountain. And when I started reading Merton, I read Seven Story Mountain. You know, I was struck by something of his that I'd heard. I'd heard words of his from his book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, that actually lit me on fire. I was so inspired by it that I wanted to learn more about him. And so I, like everyone else, I went and read that book, Seven Story Mountain. Now, I don't know if it's because I'm I'm a writer or it's my instinct as a teacher that when, when I'm reading a student's work, I, I can I can usually feel that something's missing. Mm. That things are being held back. And I read that book and and yeah, it was great, but I had that feeling that something was missing, that he's not telling me something. <laughs> and um and it wasn't until, gosh, I don't know if it was weeks or a few months later, when I was I was just in my church library, just going through some books, and I came across a, a wonderful biography. I, I believe it's called The Seven Mountains of Thomas Merton. And it's a huge mm. biography of him. And I just started flipping through it. And and I saw these references about how um, all writers, really, not just Merton, all writers in the Catholic Church went through a kind of censor, censoring process where mm. you know, they made sure you didn't say things that were scandalous or or harmful to the faith or contradictory. So um, so there were things, often things that were taken out of his writing and specifically things in Seven Story Mountain pertaining to the more rambunctious aspect of his life, like um, the mm. fact that he had um, fathered a child out of wedlock, the fact that he was a drinker, you know, that like all sorts of things, like when he was in, got into a lot of trouble when he was in college. Um, but the book, this biography also told me that he had written, that he kept extensive journals um, and 
they were published seven volumes, but they were published. Um, he had stipulated in his will that these um, journals not be published until 25 years after his death. And that's, I realized like, Oh, this is where I'll find the real Merton. I'm going to go these journals. <laughs> and, um, and that was not an easy task because they are seven volumes. They are thick and the text is tiny. This guy wrote, journaled a lot going all the way back to his, you know, very, very early 20s. Um, but it was also fascinating to me because I, I did find what I was looking for. I found this very human person who, who had frustrations, who had ambitions, who fell in love, who struggled with faith. And I thought, and, and in certain ways, he reminded me, sometimes he reminded me of my brothers. Sometimes he reminded me of guys I went to college with. And I just, I, I suddenly, I just felt very close to this person and, and found that, that he was dealing with things that I had questions about. And so it just felt like, um, it, it felt like he was mentoring me. So, so that was, you know, that was, that connection was just there. Right. And I was yeah. quoting him in, you know, I would quote him sometimes in my social media. Uh-huh. And because of that, a friend asked me to be on her panel that she was doing a panel about Merton for the Festival of Faith and Writing that happens uh, every other year at Calvin College. And um, I was on that panel. And, and when we got on stage, it, it only hit me in that moment when I'm sitting on stage, looking to my left and looking to my right and realizing, you know, I'm not an academic in, in, in when it comes to Merton. I'm not a theologian. I have not studied this man in a way. And I, I felt like I had to, I had to, um, I had to explain that. It's like, look, guys, just so you know, I told the audience, I am not academic. I'm not a theologian. I'm just someone who I kind of have this monk who follows me around and he gives me advice. So I let them know about him in this way. It's not going to be, you know, study. Yeah. Well, and that's how a lot of people will approach, will find Merton too. It, It won't always be the academics. It'll, it'll be someone who just sees some of his connects with his heart or connects with his sensibilities in just the regular in just the regular world in just a kind of normal way. Yes. And I think that they're they they either want to know how to do that or or want to to hear from someone who is on that same path. So mm. so that was the feedback I got that that people kept coming up to me after the conference, um, you know, after the panel and saying um how much that moved them, how I spoke about Merton. And a woman finally said to me, you're writing your Thomas Merton book, aren't you? And I was like, whoa, okay, wow, I guess I, sh- I can write my Thomas Merton book. And, mm. and it's okay, it's going to be like this. It's not going to be an academic study. I will, I will put in here how I converse with Merton. Yeah, one of the things that I also appreciate about your book is that you take Merton to task when you you show frustration with him sometimes, and you you treat him kind of like you might treat a, a real friend. Where yeah. you, if you're really friends with somebody, you might say, "Hey, what's this about? What are you doing yeah. this for?" Yeah, you know, <laughs> you got it. That's the that's the most human aspect of it, and and that is you know that that is the struggle. Right. That's the wonder mm-hmm. of a friendship is that kind of tension. And, and I love the ask their stories in his, you know, he talks about 
getting to meet with friends and and the spirited conversations they would have. And I just feel like um, I would I probably would have been one of those people. <laughs> yeah, it's easy for for people now or to to um, to almost canonize or put him on a pedestal like Saint Thomas. And I, I think that your book really is like, here's this human being and he's got all the same issues and problems and petty insecurities and little hangups. And maybe you can describe one of those things that you saw about him in his frailty that that you kind of take on in the book as, as something to kind of take him to task as you would a regular friend well the thing well it it drove me nuts the fact that he kept going back and forth about leaving the monastery for another monastery Um, (laughs) yeah "Yeah, i should go i really need i can't be a monk here um it just doesn't work and then days when he's like well i should be here because i'm i'm pretty much you know i can write what i want and i have a certain comfort here and then the next Mm -hmm. day we'd be like I need to get out of here. Drove <laughs> 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 me crazy. Um, but, the, but, the, but Lisa, the wonderful thing about looking at the, these frailties is also recognizing that he felt in his messiness, he felt the grace of God and knowing that God was with him in all of this messiness. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and to me, that's, um, I found that model inspiring and, and a big reason to, to present him in, in this messy humanity, because to understand, well, look, he's, if, if we connect him to spirituality and we know that he was connected to God being so human, then that avenue is open for us too, right? That, yeah. that, that we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be saints. Right. And Merton talks a lot about in his writings and of all different kinds, he talks about the ego and the, the true self and how um, God's love will kind of break down our false self mm-hmm. and uh, reveal our true self so that out of that kernel, we can feel fully loved and love others. And there's this part on page 53, I think I'm going from the PDF version. So I don't know, not sure if it's like the real 53, but <laughs> um, when it talks about most egos want even need to be fed and how are we to reconcile this, especially when we're raised in a society that cultivates ambition. And mm-hmm. he finds himself as a very ambitious person as well and wanting to look smart and wanting to be, you know, being gregarious and, um, and also kind of fighting as as most of us do fighting with himself about um what are what is his true self and what is that ego that needs to be um basically conquered by god's love and maybe you can speak to some of those those struggles and kind of what you learned as he is sort of mentoring you too in those ways yeah it's you know as a writer yeah, it was. I, I was really struck, and 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 I felt compassion for him in his ambition, right? Mm-hmm. That, that he really does want to be remembered, and and he wants this writing to to mean something, and yet, when we stray too far down that ambition, right? It's like we're pushing something that that we're not open to to what God is is directing in in this. Mm-hmm. Are we? 
truly using our gifts in the way that they were meant to be. And ambition also may put us down a path where that, that may not be good for us, right? Mm-hmm. So, so he, and yet that ego thing is there, right? Mm-hmm. It has to be acknowledged and, and not in terms of beating ourselves up over ego, but in terms of, okay, maybe we have to let the ego have a little bit of something um, so that it doesn't feel starved and run rampant <laughs> or like, an, like, a, like an animal, but to acknowledge mm. the wholeness of ourselves because that ego is part of us. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I say somewhere in, in the book that, that when we try to divide ourselves, well, the ego is over there and the real me is over mm-hmm. here, that that gets us into trouble that because it, 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 if we are divided, we can't really move forward in, in the wholeness. We are supposed to be one in ourselves and one with each other, right? There is a unity there. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we have to have compassion for the parts of ourselves that, that need it, right? Um, mm-hmm. Ego may be something as simple as, as a, a little girl that, that, that didn't get um, some sort of acknowledgement or, mm-hmm. or still has. I know my thing is, is this feeling of if I'm having too much fun, I'm going to get in trouble, right? That, that's my little oh. thing happening there. So, uh-huh. um, so if we don't acknowledge that, if we don't let that part of ourselves um, be nurtured in some way, then there's going to be an acting out in some way. And, and that takes us down a path that, that's even further away from, from where God wants our gifts to go. Hmm. Yeah, it's one of the things that struck me by Merton's writing is how he understands God's grace is a kind of stripping away of all of the sort of like the fears and the armor and and all those things that stand in the way of us understanding ourselves and and being able to love freely. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always really struck me as kind of um, somehow he gets to this idea of our true self is there. Um, and sometimes it's obscured, you know, that this is a talking about also the prayer of the heart as the, a way to kind of connect with the presence of God. And, um, and I was wondering too, if you have any kind of prayer practices, you, you talked a little bit, you wrote a little bit about that, but do you have any kind of prayer practices that you tend to go to that help you connect in a deep way like that with the presence of God? It, it changes over time, but there's always first thing in the morning, just, and for some reason, I I feel the, I feel God most in the mornings, in the early mornings. And, uh, and that's what first connected me to Merton is, is reading something of his about the morning, about how the valley awakes and feeling this sense of presence and of waiting for God to tell us it's time for you to be, it's time to become Mm. the thing that you of of who I made you to be right so Mm. so I there are pieces of scripture that in particular that I go back to when um when I feel too far away from God um specifically there's um a part in Isaiah that I absolutely love um where where uh, you know the, the reference is to Jerusalem but to me it's like a love letter from God where you know God is saying you are precious in my sight and I love you, right? I, I will give I will give countries in ransom for you. I will give Seba for your life, right? And I that love 
is is the thing that that you know makes me walk upright that that makes me you know people say oh you have a glow about you i glow because i'm loved i know that i'm loved and i and and it's not just me you are loved too and and you lisa and and that guy over there and this is all of us right mm-hmm. so so to me you know reading scripture gives me these reminders. Um, and you heard, we spoke a little bit about this in the pilgrimage of renewal session the other night, that, that we look at these stories in the Bible, we remember God at work in our lives, what God has done for his people, right? And, and we think about um, what God has already done for us. You know, we think about gratitude and, 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 the, and where God, we saw God at work in our lives. So mm. I'm constantly in a place of, of remembering um, God at work in the past, but also being very present to, to what am I supposed to be doing in this moment? And, and what is this connection right now? Um, because I feel like it, this is an ongoing creation, that, that God doesn't make things happen, but, but is constantly trying to make something of what is going on. And, mm. and I feel that, um, that I'm trying to, to do that. I'm constantly trying to think of, of how I can participate. Mm, that's beautiful. There's this portion on page 161 in the book, and I'll just read this little part, but it really involves what you call forgiving yourself as a start to beginning to love well. And I was really touched by that. You write here, getting to this place of calm and acceptance, I believe starts with forgiveness. When someone speaks words that prove they don't like themselves, I think they are responding to a shadow of reproof for past wrongs. And um, it goes on to say about how Merton would often berate himself for reckless behavior as a young man, Mm -hmm. or for careless words and thoughts, and for not being productive enough in his solitude. And many of us do the same thing. I thought this was really interesting, this idea of forgiving ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if there's a way you could a little bit flesh that out or unpack um, what what you're driving at. I mean, obviously, people are going to need to read the book. <laughs> and there's so much that that I was telling you before we were recording. There is so much to this book. It has a lot of nuance. It has a lot of stories in it. Um, it's so beautifully written. And we can't, like, I, I don't even dare jump in too deep because there's just so much there that people really do have to read it for themselves to get an idea of all of what you're up to. But the forgiving yourself piece isn't something that I tend to run across too much. My my jam is spiritual formation mm-hmm. and um, moving towards Christ-likeness and the fruits of the Spirit. And this is a really key thing that I think gets overlooked for people, that they don't think of that as part of the growth and healing process. Yeah, you know, even what you just said about being Christ-like, you know, I that already makes me think about how many ways people berate themselves for not being Christ-like, right? Yeah. We don't mm-hmm. think about how can I be Christ-like from here. We're constantly thinking about why we're not now and all of the <laughs> things that we've done that says we're that said we are not. So yeah. um and I just noticed that that people, you know, we don't berate ourselves out of the blue. Like we don't you know, there there is something there. There is a reason why we feel we're we are unworthy. And mm-hmm. it's about facing up to that. What is mm-hmm. that? Right? And and 
how can we, we can't really forgive. This is the same process that, you know, to forgive someone else. And if we don't understand it, and if we can't forgive ourselves, how can we truly forgive somebody else? Hmm. Right? So, mm-hmm. so we are, and maybe Lisa, maybe this has to do with the fact that, that, um, you know, our society is all about um, not being self-centered and, you know, mm-hmm. not being, um, you know, thinking too highly of ourselves. Like we're constantly, you know, I don't like that phrase, you're too big for your britches. You know, mm. we're constantly putting, we feel that we have to be put at a certain level and we're not supposed to get higher than that. Um, mm. So maybe that's one of the things that keep us from forgiving ourselves because it sounds like we're writing off the things that we've done wrong and, and that somehow we're not holding ourselves mm. accountable. Um, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. You know, if you know fully that, that that there's something about yourself that wasn't right before, right, then, and, and, and maybe you've addressed it, maybe you haven't, but, but really have to look at it and, and to somehow forgive yourself so that you can not only let go of it, but allow, allow yourself to be loved mm-hmm. and to know that you are deserving of, of love and, and of mm-hmm. all, uh, and of grace and all of the good things that are out there for you. Yeah, there's a piece of self-compassion that we don't um, maybe attach to, that God is God gives us freely, and there's plenty of it, and it's in abundance, and yet we'll be stingy with ourselves as if, well, I, I'll be pretty badly behaved if I forget my if I for, forgive myself or I really give myself too much leeway. Yeah. Who knows what'll happen? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I wonder if that actually keeps us um, keeps us stuck. Like when when I say we need to be more Christ-like, it's usually in the other direction of being more human, not being more holy in in a divine way, but yeah. being actually more human and being okay with being human. Yeah. I love scenes. Um, one of my favorite movies, which is actually, it was a miniseries, is um, Jesus of Nazareth, Franco Zeffirelli film that was made in the 70s about the life of Jesus. And, mm-hmm. and you see in those moments where, you know, the woman who was about to be stoned and, and the Mary Magdalene character, you know, he, he says to them, you know, go and sin no more, right? So it's like they go and, and they know that their lives are going to be different from this point forward, but you don't see them lamenting over what happened before or feeling guilty or upset with themselves because of what their life was before. They get to turn the page. Yeah. You know, he doesn't say, go home, feel like the dirty worm that you are for yeah. a couple of weeks and, and, make yourself feel horrible about it and then move on he's just like no just just don't change directions yeah and let's just do it differently we'll just do it differently from now on let's get over this and you know push on and do better yeah that's so gracious and it's like we could we could treat our kids that way we could treat our spouse that way we could treat our friends that way too and ourselves hopefully but it is hard you know we get into these jags where we'll um I, I don't know what it is, if it's a self-discipline thing, but you're right. It, it can be, it can be difficult. I think it would be interesting to, to know what was something that could not be left out of the book in your mind that was 
maybe the most powerful thing for you to write? I I think it was hmm. addressing that 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 chapter on love, right? And and addressing um, his hmm. his relationship, um, you know, falling in love with a nurse, uh, you know, after he had had back surgery. Um, I really wanted to, because you know, people tend to talk to talk about that aspect of him in a kind of like a, a scandalous way. Um, in his journals, he he talks specifically about how I'm not going to hide this, and and he shares what this, um, what happened, and and how he was, and I wanted to look at this from a point of view of of how this changed. This, this changed him. This love changed him. Not only in the immediacy of it, because, you know, I point out how in the months before he had that back surgery, he, he is in pain, he is focused on death, and, and he's, he's kind of depressed. But once he falls in love with her, you don't read anything. You're like He's still recovering from that back surgery. You don't hear anything about that back surgery or the pain or his recovery because he it's like he is alive again, that, that this love like woke him up. And, and I found it important. I think it was important that he was mm. even looking for ways to write about it after it was over, that, that he wrote the essays that I, that I quote in, in the book, that, that he knew that he had learned something about love that he wanted to comment on about the way we look at relationships. It's one of those things, you know, she's, she could be, his daughter, uh, that's the age difference. But at the same time, they, I, I found this really interesting because he was kind of a womanizer at one point, right? He had lots of, he had a lot of conquests. Yep. But what, it, what you talk about in your book is how, how love or, or sexual experiences or, or whatever was so, so very different than what happened and how he fell in love Um with someone with such vulnerability, with such deep care. And um, it was such a different type of, like a, a spiritual awakening of a kind. Like it, it's really interesting how you write about this relationship, how it changed him and how it op broke him open really in, in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really fascinating thing is I'm kind of the, you know, how do, how do people develop? How do they grow? How do they learn to love? And, it was so pivotal in his process of growth, I guess you could say. Yeah. And, and also like kind of the, it's an impossible relationship too. It's kind of like, you know, like he, I'm sure they knew that what were they going to do? Like he wasn't really going to ever leave his situation as a monk. Right. Probably, you know, so it was, it was sort of doomed and let, and yet he doesn't really talk about it in this kind of like, um, brokenhearted, uh, all is lost. I can't have the love of my life, or something. It's it's kind of interesting how it it's positive, even though it couldn't linger. Right, because love like that is is huge. It, it mm. never really goes away, and and I think he learned this that that it is something bigger than than the two people themselves, right? Mm. And, and that's why I felt bad that that. Um, that their relationship was discovered and he couldn't communicate with her anymore because it was really the communication that was everything. I think he would be hmm. fine if he if he had been allowed to to write her letters, right? If they had been in in 
uh, communication where um, he could, um, they could encourage each other and, and that they, you know, that it could have really grown, right? Um, I feel bad for them in that respect, but I also think what you were just saying in terms of spiritual growth, I think it was because of trust, right? Mm. That's about how one of the reasons he behaved the way he did when he was a younger man is because he never really trusted that that anyone could care for him. He didn't know that that the girls he was with really loved him. And he, re- and one of the big things he noticed was that he he really felt her love and that he could accept it, right? So, so isn't this a little bit of what we were talking about earlier about, about God's love, right? I think a lot, big thing, a big, a big reason people can't grasp God is because they can't believe that someone, something out there loves them to that extent, right? That I would give up Seba for your life, right? You are precious in my sight. Yeah. But if yeah. you can't accept that, how can how can you be changed by it? Yeah. How can you trust it? You know, I think that speaking directly to that on a personal level, becoming a parent broke me open in that same way. Um, because I was like, oh, there's no end to my love for this child who's vulnerable and helpless. Like every other relationship, friendship, you know, with my family or with my husband felt a level of risk and danger that I couldn't control. But with my child, I felt, I was like, this, is this what God feels like in some huge amount compared to mine? But for me, where it's just like this impossibly huge love. It really did kind of make me think, I don't know if you had any kind of experience like that as a parent, but where you think, oh, wow, like I almost felt ashamed that I was so clueless to it before. Hmm. Um, not necessarily as a, a parent, because yes, yes, I have that kind of love for my child, and but I have a very specific sense of him as his own separate person. Like that, that was the big thing for me when my son was born. It felt like a He's his own thing, and uh, I'm I am blessed with the opportunity to to um, to shepherd him and, and he can be on his own. I think I felt more what you're talking about um, with my own father, and, mm. and the big thing, the big change in my life was when I realized how much he loved me, and mm. accepting that. That's when that was huge for me. Wow, yeah. So you felt your father's own love for you was so limitless and so huge that you could really grasp it. You could, it didn't feel conditional or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Then, and I think that's, that tends to be a more rare human experience possibly. That's beautiful that you could have that in your life. I'm so grateful for your time and your work. And what are some places people can find you online? Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, Sophronia Scott author is my Facebook page. And, uh, and I have the YouTube channel, which is where uh, my morning walks also show up. So, and I'm on Instagram as well. I love, um, I love, I'm a visual person. So, um, so I'm on Instagram. Also the, the Alma MFA, that's at um, alma.edu slash MFA. It's a low residency program. So, uh, 
we are accepting applications now for our first residency. Our first residency will be in June and the application deadline is May 1st. Thank you.